Well, this morning we continue our way through 1 Corinthians as we jump back into that series after a, a, a long um, walkabout through, uh, through new creation. We've come back last week to 1 Corinthians and considered 1 Corinthians 12 and today uh, providentially, it was not planned indeed, but providentially we deal with 1 Corinthians 13 on the day in which Mark and Betty uh, recommit themselves to one another. So that's a beautiful providential act. But you'll remember last week in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul was beginning to, well, not beginning because he was in the second part of that chapter, but he was dealing with the issue of church unity and the fact that though we all have many gifts, we are nonetheless one body. And he, he used that metaphor of the body to give us a picture. We talked about last week how metaphors are wonderful to help us get at truth that many times it's hard to get at, you know, square on and directly. But you throw a metaphor out there and then you can play with it and you can think about it and see things that perhaps you wouldn't have seen. And that metaphor of the body for the church is such a beautiful metaphor to contemplate. And so Paul did that. At the end of that chapter, he recognized the fact that within this body, just as we are one body but with many members, and each member has something different to do, kind of, but in, in a very deep and organic sense, each part affects the whole. You don't bang your thumb with a hammer and, and the ear goes, wow, stinks to be you. You know, you don't have that kind of thing. You know, you, you hit your thumb with a hammer and the whole body hurts. It's not that the ear doesn't hurt. The ear is connected to the whole and the whole feels the, the wrenching pain of that. And it all, it all reacts. And the same thing when something positive happens, right? The whole body delights. And so Paul was warning the church to be careful of this. Because they in Corinth, just like at Affirmation in the Church Universal, has been blessed with a multitude of gifts. And what diversity tends to do is bring comparison. You know, I have this and you have that. And, you know, I'm more important than you. That's the kind of thing that starts to happen. Or my gifts are more valuable. Or the opposite. You have a, an inferiority complex. You know, well, I'm not that. So I'm not really that important, you know. Um, and, and Paul gets right after that in the body. That's not how it works within the body. You know, the, 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 the pinky toe can't say to the mouth, you know, well, because I'm not always up there talking and getting all the attention, I'm not that important. It just doesn't work that way. Nor can the mouth say, I'm more important than you. It's not how a, that's not how a body works. If, if, if all there was was a mouth, what good would that be? What kind of being would that be if it was just a mouth? The mouth is something of great value because it is part of this cohesive whole. You know, what good would a preacher be? If there's no church, right? And, and every other part within the body, what, what would it mean if, if the whole body weren't there? So Paul warns, he can see, and it's already happening in Corinth, so it's not just that he has these you know, eyes to see the future. He has eyes to literally see what's happening in Corinth. And what's happening in Corinth is division, comparison, superiority, inferiority. And it's working its way like a cancer through the life of the church. Therefore, Paul said at the end of that, the last verse that we looked at, and remember, he didn't write in chapters, so this would flow immediately into the next verse, right? He didn't write verses and chapters. He just wrote a letter. We chop it up. But for us, the text ended last week, but earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I will show you a more excellent way. Right? There's something more important than the gifts. And of course, that brings us into the chapter known in the Bible as the love chapter, because the more excellent way is love. The thing to desire 
above everything else within the church is love. The thing to pursue above everything else in the church is love. And to trust that then our gifts, our particularities, the, the, the peculiar gifts that God gives to us will flourish in a context of love. Therefore, pursue love and let the gifts do their thing. But if you pursue the gifts and hope that love's fo love follows, it's a gamble. The love will bring the gifts to bear. The, the love will be the soil out of which the loves, the, uh, excuse me, the gifts grow. But if you just go for the gifts, if that's what's so important to you, to desire the best gifts, then you will find yourself turning inward. And that's going to be disaster for the church. So Paul brings us to this beautiful chapter on love. Now, the word love that he's using, you know, because it, this is something that we've done a pretty good job of in, in evangelical Christianity is talking about love. We, un, we know the word agape. We know that, we know that within the Greek, uh, there are multiple words for love. And this is important. This is a problem with English. English is a beautiful and complex language, an unbelievably complex language and beautiful. But a severe weakness is in the word love, and that's a pretty fundamental word. But we just have one word for that. Whereas the Greeks give them this, they had multiple words for love, right? They, they understood that there are orders of love, and things are more worthy of love, and there are deeper loves, there are more godly loves, and there are more basic loves. None of the loves in the Greek were bad. It's just there are romantic loves, there are friendship loves. The city of Philadelphia is called the... So in this text, in this text, we're not talking about phileo, you know, a brotherly love, uh, or phileo. Uh, we're not talking about storge. We're not talking about eros, that, that romantic love, storge, the love of things. These are all good loves. These are all good loves. But the love that, of course, is held out for us, the love that God is... These other things are, are, are reflections of the love of God. And there, it's, there, there are appropriate ways to love flowers. It's right to love flowers, and there's an appropriate way to do it. There's a right way to love baseball, you know, and especially the Dodgers. There's a very appropriate way to them, right? Although, yeah, the Dodgers are a disaster. But, but there's an appropriate way to love them. There's an appropriate way to love cheeseburgers and whatever music you like, to love your wife and to love God. And the, and the Greeks understood that, and they, they had the words for that. And here... The word is agape, that highest form of love. And as we talked about, the ministry of Jesus is prophetic. And here, as, as again, as Mark mentioned in his opening prayer, you know, the what you see in Jesus is a prophecy, a prophetic message, a declaration that shatters the world's understandings of things. It shatters the idea of what it means to be a king. I hear, you know, nailed above his head three times in Jews. Um, and, and yes, and I, and I, this is a, this is a sovereign providential, I believe, working of God that they are displayed for all the world to see is what it means to be king. You know, what it means to be the head. He is the head of the, what does headship mean, husbands? What does it mean to be head over your wife? This, you know, that's what a king does. That, that's what the head of the church looks like. The bridegroom of his bride. That's what it looks like. And that prophetic message of Jesus just shatters. It explodes the worldly images of kingship. Okay, well, also with love. God is love. 
And Jesus is the word of God made flesh. He is the revelation of God in the flesh. Do you want to know what love looks like? Then you look at the cross. There it is in, in full display. And it blows up all the soft, fuzzy images of, that the world has, all of which are not wrong. They're not completely wrong. But again, they're shadows of the ultimate reality. And the ultimate reality is seen in Christ. In this is love, he says. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave his son for us. In this is love. This is love. That's what it looks like. And so Paul, with that on his mind, then turns to a Corinthian church that is failing to understand love. There's too much love of self. There's too much self-protection and not enough love of God and love of the brother. And, and as John said, don't you dare say you love God, but you hate your brother. If you can't love this lowly character, this easy-to-love character, and I know you, we think we're hard to love because we're angular and we're annoying and we bother each other and we have all kinds of problems. That's true. Oh, my goodness gracious, they're tangible. They're right there. If, if, if you struggle, then don't talk about you love the God you haven't seen. The other. So he comes to a Corinthian church that is struggling deeply on this most fundamental thing. And he challenges them. First, he challenges them with the necessity of love. The necessity of love. The fact that take love out of the equation and everything else you have within the church becomes vapor at best, and toxic at worst. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. It doesn't matter, and here's the shocking thing, it doesn't matter how true the content of your speech is. You could be, you'd be the best preacher in the world. The most eloquent. You could have the tongues of angels. Something he's speaking here about tongues, which he's going to go into in the next chapter. I don't think so. I think what he's talking about here is eloquence. Because Paul was challenged for not being very eloquent. You know, again, the other Gnostic teachers who were coming into Corinth and undermining him did speak with the tongues of angels. They were, oh, they were so eloquent. And that's, I think, what Paul's getting at here. Eloquence, rhetorical oration, ability or whether I, I stumble to put together a sentence. If I don't have love, I might as well just be clanging a cymbal and annoying everybody, just ringing everybody's ears. That's how valuable it is. Now, now God can work through clanging cymbals. Don't get me wrong. God can work through an unloving pastor. Right? God can work through a donkey. God can work through a betrayer or a denier. A persecutor, right? God, God, God doesn't need me to be loving. I need me to be for my words to have any value in my in the day I stand before the Lord. They must be, they must flow from love. If not, they profit me nothing. I, I can't stand before God and say, Yeah, but look at the catalog of my sermons. Did you hear that one? it might as well be a banging symbol. That, yeah, may or may not have brought people to salvation, but that's not me anyway. That's the Lord. 
So all your great oration, and then if, if you want, fill in your thing. Okay, I'm a speaker. That's what I do. Here, Chapelfield, everything. That's my thing. But take yours. Whether you do it at the lowest ability or at the highest ability. If it does not flow from love for God and for your brother, your neighbor, it's nails on a chalkboard. Secondly, again, we're still in the necessity of love. Though I have the gift of prophecy. And here he goes to speaking in, but he's not talking about now sort of ability. Now he's talking about usefulness for ministry. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains. I mean, here you are useful, in air quotes, for the kingdom. You're a doer. You seem like a servant within the kingdom. And not only that, it even seems to be bearing fruit. Your sermons are having power. Your ministry is affecting lives. You, you know, hungry people are getting fed because of you or whatever. You're bringing, you're bringing the, the, the word of God to bear upon the nations. You're useful to God. But if it is not brought out of love, God may use it. He will use your loveless actions. To bless people. Heck, he uses, doesn't he use the, the actions of, of pagans, God-haters, to bless us? You know, who's going to cook our meal today? I, I don't know. I don't know if he or she's a Christian or not. Maybe a complete pagan, but we're going to be blessed by them. God can, God can use pagans to bless people. He doesn't need Christians to do it. But if we go loveless, God may use it. Profits nothing to you. And then finally, sacrifice. Sacrifice. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. So now it's not just useful. Now it's like it's costing me something. You're giving of yourself. And I mean, let's take it to the ultimate. I mean, just like having the tongues of angels here in terms of sacrifice for the kingdom. And though I give my body to be burned. Let's just, he just ramps it right up to, to the highest level. Yeah, but Paul, I've really sacrificed. Okay, give your body to be burned. Well, even were you to do that. So the, the, the thing you do is not significant if it is not accompanied by love. So, brothers and sisters, I think, we, I think by the time you get to throwing, you kind of get the point. Love is not an option. Love is the thing we must cultivate. We must cultivate a love for God so that the thing we're doing kind of moves to the side. It gets pushed out. It's not, it's not what I see. What I see is God and I see God in my neighbor. And again, with a love that looks like Jesus' love because that's what love is. And what Jesus' love looks like is a love that, again, was just other-centered. Jesus' food and drink, he says, is to do the will of my Father in heaven. So that even when he gets to the point of the cross, all he can see is the will of his heavenly Father. Father, not my will, but your will be done. Like, I love you with all my heart. He's the only one who has ever loved God with all his heart, all his mind, all his soul, and all his strength. Of course he doesn't want to endure wrath. 
Of course he doesn't want to drink the cup. Of course he doesn't want to be crushed in the wine press of, of God's judgment. But he'll do it because there's something he wants even more than not being crushed in the wine press of God's wrath. And that is to honor his father. He wants to love his father more than he wants not to be crushed. And so even though he sees the wine press of the judgment and wrath of God, it evaporates, it moves to the side, it stands behind, if you will, something greater. And that is the love of God, his father. And when he's on the cross, of course, love of his father, but love of you. I mean, again, while he's sweating drops of blood, he's praying in John 17 for you. I pray not only for them, that they might be one. Remember, that's the prayer. I pray not only for them, my disciples, but I pray also for all those who will believe in me through them. I mean, Jesus, as he's going to the cross, again, the, the wine press of wrath kind of moves to the side because he sees you. And then when he's on the cross, he sees his persecutors. Like the, the, the souls of his persecutors come to the fore. And he says, Father, forgive them. This is the love that he calls us to and that must be the source out of which our eloquence or our gifts or our usefulness for ministry or our sacrifices for the kingdom must flow out of the necessity of love. And then he turns to the characteristics of love. And this is what we, we know most. And it's interesting to me in verse 4 that as he turns, if you will, to the characteristics of love, he begins this way. Love suffers. That's how he starts. That's a great entree. He doesn't say love is awesome. It is awesome. He goes right to the heart of it. Love suffers much. Long. Love suffers long. Okay, yeah, this is love. So, of course, love involves suffering. So, again, we can't be surprised. It's like I tell my students, you know, in, in the kingdom, like you, I, 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 of course, the stuff I tell them I don't actually do, but that's the, that's, the, that's the hard part of being a teacher. I'm like, you can't grumble when the persecution comes. But then, again, the first signs of trouble, I'm whining and complaining about the nature of things. You can't grumble when the persecution comes. Jesus said it's coming. Well, you can't grumble when love makes you suffer because that's what love does. If you have it, it suffers. Love suffers long. In fact, the more you love, the more you will suffer. C.S. Lewis says this in his love for, you know, joy. You know, this is going to hurt. You know, the minute he starts loving her, he acknowledges, this stinks. <laughs> this is going to hurt. And the more I pour into this, the worse it's going to hurt when I lose her. That's the tough part about love. The more you love, the more vulnerable you are. You pour yourself into a marriage. The more you pour and invest in love, the more vulnerable you become to the pain of loss. We know this. We've been with people in this congregation who have lost. Same thing with parents and children and friends, church members. 
easy not to love, right? Easy to keep yourself in it. We all feel this sometimes. I shouldn't say, oh, maybe you haven't. But you feel that when you watch somebody grieving over the loss of a dear friend. Better not to have friends. Maybe it's better not to have children than to have to go through the lifelong pain. Maybe it's better not to be married. Maybe it's better not to be close to people because you get close to people, you are going to suffer. You are going to be hurt. And yet, this is the very thing he calls us to do. He did it. He made himself, the, 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 he is the essence of vulnerability upon the cross. Love suffers. And then he gives us the contrast, the two things which we kind of know. Love is not about oneself. And that's, that's why it suffers, because it's, it's, a, it's a thing of giving away. Love suffers long. It's kind. It does not envy. It does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. I mean, Jesus, just think of this in the life of Jesus. It's the exact opposite. Right? It, it's self-deprecating. It, 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 it deflects. It deflects to the other. It doesn't envy. It doesn't look upon you with, with, with malice, but with concern, with kindness. It's kind. It wants, it wants the best for the other. And you just, I mean, the, the more I talk about this, the more convicted I get. Because again, this doesn't come naturally to us. This is what sin did. It, 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 it twisted love in knots. It's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. To be provoked is you're bothering me. And I'm thinking about me. What you're doing is annoying me. You're ticking me off. You're frustrating me. But that's not what love does. Love is not provoked because it's not thinking about its own. It doesn't think evil. And then positively, so that's negatively, it doesn't orient toward oneself. But then in verse 7, it turned up, but it bears all things. Because as we heard earlier, that's what we're to do. As the body of Christ, we bear one another's burdens, and that's what love does. Not only does it not think about oneself, it bears your burdens. And again, here the cross is the very essence of this. What is he doing on the cross? He who knew no sin became sin for you. He became your burden. I mean, he so was united to your burden that you couldn't tell the difference anymore. He became your burden. He took it on himself so tightly to relieve you that he became your burden and took it and, and dealt with it. It bears all things. It believes all things, hopes all things. It endures all things. Yes, it's good to be married. Yes, it's good to have children if God wills. Yes, it's good to have friends. Yes, it is good to, to be vulnerable and invest in friendships and relationships within the church and the body of Christ because love is called to endure all things. It's a good thing to endure and to suffer. It's Christ-like. It's God-like. It's what it means to be in the image of God. And that's why it's not good for man to be alone. The minute you think, no, 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 but it's, I'm protected here. No, you realize, no, that's toxic. It's, it's inhumane. It, it's, it is, and by alone, I don't mean unmarried or without children. I just mean socially, like I'm not, I'm not going to be vulnerable. I'm not going to, I am not going to invest and pour myself into others. It is not good for man to be alone it, because it violates the very image of God, who is love. 
Love is not an option. And to be a man or woman in the image of God, love is not an option because God is love. And therefore, it is not good nor right for man to be alone. And this brings us then finally to love's expiration date. <laughs> That's a cheesy point by, by me, but... Verse 8. Bat pastors do this stuff all the time. Love never fails. Every, and here's what he says. Everything else will fail. If there are prophecies, usefulness for the kid, it will fail. It, it's time is limited. We only need prophets and preachers for so long. Right? There's an expiration date on me. There's an expiration date on my usefulness for the kingdom. You know, my eloquence. There's, a, there's an expiration date on that. That will fail. That will go away. There will be a time when I am no more. You know, affirmation is going to have to deal with it. Chapel Field's going to have to deal with it. My family's going to have to deal with it. Right? We know this reality. My usefulness as a dad, my usefulness as a husband, my usefulness as a pastor, my usefulness as a head of schools, that'll go away. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Where there is knowledge, you know, this knowledge that the Greeks were so puffed up with, all their debates and their, you know, their forums, that'll vanish. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. All, all this seeing through a mirror dimly, all this pontificating that we do within the church, all this speculating will be gone away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. And here I think Paul is identifying himself with Israel, but also with all the people of God. It's not just him as, a, as an individual. When I, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. That is, hey, Corinthians, we are to be men and women. We're to be adults is the point he's saying. We're not little babies who are like, this is mine. You know, tugging the toy out of the other kid's hand, crying when it gets taken away. My gift is better than your gift. That's stupid. When we were children, we did that. But Corinthians, we are, Christ has come. The full image of God has come and we are mature in him. Therefore, we need to put away childish things. We need to use gifts as tools for love. Not tools for the sake, not, not uh, gifts as, as tools for self-aggrandizement. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then in Christ and one day in glory face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall, I shall know as I am known. And now abide faith, hope, and love these three, and the greatest of these is love. We have a, a huge picture at Chapel Field in the hallway. It's a picture of the, of the seven virtues, the, the four cardinal virtues and the three uh, theological virtues. So prudence and justice and um, courage and wisdom. So two on this side, two on this side. And then in the center, the three theological virtues. And they are portrayed as women and then down below the seven liberal arts. But on the top, the seven virtues. So those four, two and two. And then in the center, three women representing the three theological virtues, faith and hope. And then in the middle, this is a medieval painting. And in the middle of the line of these virtues represented as women, in the center is love. And all the women are doing something to represent that virtue. 
they all have a little thing. It's fun. It's a fun picture to look at. And they're all looking down at something or they're doing, and it's, and the, you look at each one and, and you kind of contemplate what it's saying about that virtue. They're all looking at something, doing something, all of them. And in the center is love and love is looking at you. They're all looking at something, but love is looking straight at you. And it's like, what, what it's saying is all these, in order to deal with all these, you got to deal with me. You got to look here. And I love that. It just calls you right to her, calls you to love, and then through love to these other virtues, to these other things. These be- I mean, courage, beautiful. Wisdom, beautiful. Justice, beautiful. Patience, beautiful. Faith, wonderful. Hope, beautiful. All of them meaningless if you don't deal with me, if you don't have love. Everything else will fade. This will abide. This is the greatest of all of them. So brothers and sisters, I charge you this morning, in our dealings, in our gifts and abilities, in our relationships, may it be love that is at the very center of it. If you want to know what love is, then you look to the cross, for this is love. Not that you loved him, but that he loved you, loved you, and sent his son to be the propitiation for your sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God, for your grace and mercy. We thank you that you loved us who are so unlovable. We think ourselves lovable. But Father, you see us as we are, and yet you love us, and we thank you for that. And so, Lord God, we confess our failings. We confess the fact that we do not like to be made vulnerable. We, we dread the suffering that love entails, the endurance that it entails. But we pray that more and more, by the gift of your Holy Spirit, you would make us like Christ, perfect us for that thing which will abide unto all eternity, for you are love. So, Father, bless us, we pray here. And all who visit us this morning, your church at large, may it be a church characterized by this above all else, love. We ask this all in the name of Christ. Amen.